Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Joel Mukir, who is a professor of economics and history at Northwestern University and professor of economics at the University of Tel Aviv. His, uh, he specializes in economic history and the economics of technological change and population change. His most recent book is A Culture of Growth. He has authored over 100 articles and books in his field. Welcome, Joel. Hello. Uh, I want to start with your recent paper, uh, Attitudes, Aptitudes, and the Roots of the Great Enrichment, uh, in which you say attitudes, that is cultural beliefs, and aptitudes, that is technical competence, played central roles in the British Industrial Revolution and the origins of modern growth. Uh, you say one might ask if uh, we could see these as necessary or sufficient conditions and the answer depends a bit on whether we try to explain a few isolated inventions in the cotton and iron industry or uh, really look at the Industrial Revolution more holistically. Um, you, want to, you want to talk a bit about that, uh, why you believe um, attitudes and aptitudes played a big role? Yeah, well, <laughs> it will take a while, but, but I'll, I'll do my best to summarize uh, this essay. I mean, this essay really summarizes much of what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so, uh, including the book that you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I, I would not for a minute claim that the arguments I'm making in that paper completely summarize everything that mattered. Because I think the what happens is that the Industrial Revolution and the sort of great enrichment that followed it and that we are all beneficiaries of mm-hmm. um, really was the result of the confluence of a whole bunch of factors. Uh, and so uh, it, it's not clear which of these were sufficient conditions. It's as if you were sort of growing an apple all right, so what do you need to go and have an apple? Well, you know, is it necessary for somebody have to plant it, the tree? And the answer is yes, but then there's a whole bunch of other things. You know, it has to rain the right kind, you have to fertilize, you have to uh, cross, pollinate the flowers. I mean, you have to, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that come in and at the end what you have is an apple and you can ask yourself which, which of these was uh, was a necessary condition. And clearly, you know, if you don't, if you don't, plant a tree, yeah. then you're not going to have apples. But if you plant a tree and then you don't do all these other things, you may not have apples either. So, you know, it, I think this is basically what's happened here. We're looking at this fantastic outcome that's probably the most significant change in economic history since the invention of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, because until about 1800, the vast bulk of the human race in abject poverty. And uh, the fact that we are now living uh, in at a very high living standard, uh, far above what's needed for subsistence, basically everywhere, but certainly in the in in, in the majority uh, of, of humanity, that I think is is a departure that even in 
1800, nobody would have believed could ever happen. Not Adam Smith, not Malthus, not Ricardo, not even John Stuart Mill. The great minds of economics always were convinced that in the end, much of the human race would remain mired in poverty. <laughs> and to everybody's surprise, so to speak, um, we were able to sort of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and provide a living standards. And even in countries that we think are relatively poor, yeah. uh, the vast bulk of people, you know, they don't just have enough food. You know, they have motorcycles, they have televisions, they have, you know, uh, smartphones. Uh, you know, they, they eat much better than their great grandfathers did. So the great enrich enrichment really is a global phenomenon. But it's also clear that it started in Europe. Uh, and, you know, the question is, what exactly was it in Europe that got this snowball rolling? And right. so what I argue in that paper is that one of the important things that you have to realize <laughs> is that events like that are driven by a fairly small number of people. It is really, an, uh, you know, 95% of the population um, mm. up in, say, 1700 were still peasants, most of them probably illiterate. And these people had very little room and very little ability to bring about uh, the kind of changes that you needed for an industrial revolution. So you're looking at a small group of people which has two components. One of them is what we would call today, they would never use that term, but we yeah. would call today intellectuals. Okay, so these are people that they would call uh, natural philosophers. These were people who were doctors. These are people who were uh, astronomers, um, mathematicians, um, uh, that kind of people. And the other group, which is also fairly small, is the creme de la creme of the art artisans. The, so these are people that they would call uh, engineers, millwrights, uh, high-quality artisans, clockmakers, watchmakers, instrument makers. But, you know, most artisans were fairly crude carpenters and, you know, um, uh, weavers. But within yeah. the population of artisans, there's a bunch of people who really, really, really good. And it's the intellectuals and the top of the artisans who between the two of them created the Industrial Revolution. So let me first talk a little bit more about, about the intellectuals. You know, So Europe certainly does not have a monopoly on intellectual activity and creativity, say, in, in, uh, in 1500. I mean, in many ways, I would think that the level of intellectual activity, just in terms of, of you know, uh, intellectuals coming together, talking to each other, teaching each other. Uh, it prob in, in China, in the Islamic world, in India, is probably, if not higher, certainly as high as it is in Europe. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't see anything like an industrial revolution happen in these other civilizations. Mm. So what's different about European intellectuals uh, that's not that you can from other intellectual societies elsewhere in the world. And yeah. so there's sort of three things that I point to. The first is I think that Europeans already in the late Middle Ages, more and more, I would think, after the invention of the printing press in the middle of the 15th century, are able to free themselves from what I would call intellectual ancestor worship. And uh, the notion that somehow uh, all knowledge has been revealed to our forefathers mm -hmm. uh, many generations ago and that we are just uh, basically following them. And if you want to be wise, all you have to do is read their writings. Okay, That's a very deep uh, concept that you find in many civilizations, of course, including Europe to some extent. And so it, it is very strong in Islamic civilization where, you know, there's a growing uh, 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 concentration on reading the Quran and the Hadith, which is the later writings of the Muhammad. You see the same happening in China with the Neo-Confucian hmm. uh, revolution during the Song period. You see it very 
wrong among Jewish civilization in Europe, in which basically you want to know something, go read the writings of earlier civilizations and you will find the answer. If you haven't found it, you haven't looked deep enough. This is, and, uh, this is what you're calling the attitude, right? Yes, that's an attitude. The attitude is what I call intellectual ancestor worship. And what is so striking about Europe is that at some point, you know, I would say somewhere in the late 15th century, maybe you can find it a little bit early if you dig deep enough, but it, but it becomes very common after 1500, is that people basically abandon the intellectual uh, ancestor worship and they become increasingly critical of the heritage of classical civilization. So, you know, what happens, of course, in the, in, in, in the Middle Ages and in, in, in the Renaissance is people increasingly discover the writings of, of Roman and Greek sages. Uh, some of them, they through manuscripts that they discover, and some of them through translations from Arabic. But uh, basically, they discover this heritage and they say, oh, wow, these people really knew a lot. And then they teach this stuff. OK, so it's <laughs> Aristotle is a little bit earlier, but then they find all these other uh, uh, writers, Galenus in medicine and on and on and on. Yeah. And the odd thing is, is that at some point they're starting to scratch their head and say, wait a minute, is this right? And then they start realizing that a lot of the stuff that the ancients believed in, particularly Aristotle, who was of course the be all and end all of, of much of science, are just not right. And mm. they start correcting it and sort of by, I would say at some point, whether this is at the time of Galileo or Copernicus, you know, it depends which field you're talking about, they slowly come to the realization that this stuff is to a large extent wrong and they can do better. And they yeah, start... So this is uh, so in the in the article you say, Joel, that the veneration for ancient knowledge had a distinct dampening effect on the ability of society to experience knowledge progress, since it imposed constraints on what new knowledge was and was not permissible. So what you what you're saying here is um, this was distinctly different in Europe compared yeah. to other. Uh, comparably advanced societies at that time. Absolutely, yeah. 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 That's yeah. What, that, 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 I think, is, is really a very striking phenomenon. And not all groups in Europe follow this, obviously. There's a lot of resistance to this, and there's this whole, what the French call the querelle des anciennes et des modernes, there's this struggle between the ancients and the moderns. The ancients are the people who say, nah, you know, we are nothing compared to the Greeks, and we should be... Uh, just studying them and the moderns say, you know, no, no, we, we, we can do better. Uh, mm. But say, if, you know, you look, for instance, something that I have studied a bit, and that's Jewish civilization. So yeah. the Jews are, you know, more, if, more than anybody else suffer from, or at, least at that time, suffered from ancestor, intellectual ancestor worship. You know, you want to know something, go to the Talmud. You know, in the Talmud state Alice, you know, everything is written in the Talmud. Well, it isn't. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> stuff in there, but it, but, 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 but not everything they ought to know. And so for the Jews for a very long time remained captured by this uh, ancestor worship. And then at some point in the 19th century, they abandoned everything. And then you start getting people like, you know, Einstein. But, uh, uh, but that takes a long time. Whereas in the, the Europeans, Already by the time in which, say, you see people, I say, early 17th century, you know, when the great minds like Galileo and Francis Bacon and, and René Descartes a little bit later, you know, these people basically have already completely liberated themselves yeah. from, from, the, from this tyranny of ancestor worship. And I think that, 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 that's truly amazing. And you know, in China, there are attempts in that direction, but it fails. Mm. And certainly in, in, under the Manchu or the Qing dynasty, uh, um, if anything, things become more and more conservative. Uh, the same is true in Islamic civilization. Not only that they were more conservative, they wouldn't even print books. You know, the, mm. the printing press isn't introduced in the Islamic world until late in the 18th century, so many, many years after it was introduced in Europe. And, and, and so that kind of conservative, maybe we should just call it a reaction, uh, makes it very difficult to experience intellectual innovation. Yeah. And so I you, think you, it, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no. So, so you asked, you know, to what can we attribute this rather unique cultural turn? 
And you say one of them is rather obvious. From the late 15th century on, Europeans were repeatedly confronted with discoveries that contradicted and received wisdom of the ancients, making classical science continuously lose credibility. So it is really sort of emerging um, new information that seems to contradict the status quo. Uh, so, so stuff like this wasn't happening elsewhere? No, it wasn't happening elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and if it was, you know, then the, the conservative authorities were able to suppress it. Hmm. And so the word, you know, the idea of heresy, of somebody coming up with a new idea and people say, ah, you know, this is heresy. Heresy basically means it's new and we don't like it. Yeah. And yes. uh, so, you know, there's obviously an attempt in Europe to suppress heresy. And some of these were, were quite ugly events. We all know about Everybody knows about the Galileo trial and the burning of Giordano Bruno and, and Miguel Cervetus. I mean, so there, there was some of that in Europe. But in the end, the project of repressing new knowledge in Europe by reactionary authority is a complete and total failure. And by the 18th century, when we have the Enlightenment going, essentially, this is they no, they no longer try this. OK, everybody yeah. understands that suppressing new knowledge is not going to work and you don't see a lot of heretics being burnt at the stake by 1750, you know. <laughs> they came, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of window dressing. They gave them a little bit of a slap on the wrist. So just have somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau who writes something that really annoys everybody. They say, ah, you know, this isn't nice. Uh, you know, go away for a few years and then they burn a few books. But, you know, they can burn a few books, but they don't burn Rousseau. <laughs> and yeah. so that's, and so this, pro basically, this fails in Europe and, um, and, and at some point, essentially, the intellectual ancestor worship is completely abandoned. If you look today, I mean, the idea that we would go to ancient writings right. uh, in order to learn anything about, you know, well, there's always some, some you know, some eccentric people who, uh, who believe in, in the literal, you know, story of creation, there's even a creationist museum, but, 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 you know, those people don't matter in some sense to the progress of science, but, but, but within modern science, and this is true, not only in the hard science, it's equally true in economics. You know, we're not interested in what, you know, people thought about in the field 50 or 200 years ago. You know, we want to read the papers, the most recent papers, because newer is better. So this and, is the so this is another ingredient that was needed. So you say change in attitudes was driven in part by institutional change. Absolutely. The the yeah. new discoveries would not have been effective if you know in overthrowing the classical orthodoxy, had it uh, not been for an environment in which intellectual innovation was rewarded, and in incentivized, and moreover could not be effectively suppressed by conservatives and vested interests. Exactly. So, and, and, I, yeah. and it's not like that. As I said, it's not like they're not trying and everybody's really worried about it, you know. And so there's, this, there's a century of debate about the Copernican revolution, say, OK, is Copernicus right or isn't he right? You know, and what he said was obviously heretical and he knew it. He was worried about it. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't publish his book until a year before he, he died. And then there's a whole sort of story about how his publisher, in order to protect him, basically puts in the introduction, well, you know, you might think that he's that he's he's uh, he's saying something very rapid but it doesn't really mean it you just think it's maybe possible you know there's all this waffling because they're worried about the you know inquisition cracking down on him um, yeah. but you know but that's 1543 i think a century later you know galileo says this quite openly um, and even he, you know, gets into some measure of trouble. So that's a separate story. <laughs> but, but you know, but in the end, we, we all realize that the, you know, the heliocentric hypothesis becomes, you know, victorious. Yeah. Uh, it had the advantage of being right. So, uh, so you call this, you call this, you know, sort of the market for ideas. And so the market for ideas became more active and more competitive especially when the monopoly of the Catholic Church collapsed after 1517. So that's an important yes. aspect also, right? Absolutely. So, the, so this is, so I, I like to think about ideas as being traded in a market. I must say not all social scientists idea because, you know, the market here is a metaphor. It isn't really a market in which things are being bought and sold in the sense that, 
you know, a normal market would. There, in whole, there doesn't mean no price mechanism. But you can yes. think about the market for ideas in which people come up with new ideas and they're trying to convince an audience mm. that they've got it right. That's what I'm doing right now, if you want. But, 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 but this is basically how modern knowledge advances. People come up with innovations and they're trying to convince an audience that, you know, this is a new way of looking at things. So some of these things are very famous. You know, Darwin writes The Origin of Species. Uh, you know, that's, that, that, that's an extremely successful product that he puts uh, on the market, you know, or, you know, Einstein's uh, relativity theory, you know, that kind of thing. But most ideas are fairly small, minor things. But you go to and, and try to convince an audience that you've got it right. How do you do that? You publish, basically, yeah. or you give lectures, um, that kind of thing. And then if you make a sale, if you, you convince an audience, then what you gain is something called reputation. Yeah. And so people will all know that so-and-so came up with that idea. And, you know, that's nice for so-and-so because <laughs> reputation is then correlated with what I call patronage. So, yeah. uh, and so the people who are, that's still true today. I mean, we don't call it patronage, we call it tenure. But this is what universities. <laughs> well, this is what universities do, right? I mean, how do people get tenure? I've been on. I don't know how many tenure <laughs> meetings in my life. And basically, what we're talking about is reputation. You go around the field, yeah. and you ask people, "Hey, uh, what do you think of so and so's work?" Hmm. And then you get letters, and you get and you get all kinds of information, and you say, "Well, this person really is merits tenure because other people in the field think his work is very good." Yeah. And that, that's how a market works. And then the question yeah. is, to what extent is this market open? To what extent is it competitive? To what extent is it efficient? You can ask the kind of questions that economists asked about markets. And what I'm arguing in my book and in that essay is that the market for in Europe um, at some point became increasingly efficient and worked far better in large part because it was competitive, but also because there were, you know, uh, exogenous changes that made the market work better. You think above all about the printing press. So the printing press allows you to reach a much larger audience. Yeah. Uh, but you can think about other things like better postal services, for instance, you know, so people corresponded a lot, far more. Well, I'm not sure more than today, but 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 certainly far more than, say, in the Middle Ages, because it was easier and cheaper to send letters around. Uh, another thing that helped the market work very well is they had a lingua franca. They all wrote at least until the middle of the 17th century in Latin. And that helps because everyone, all the people who are intellectuals uh, could yeah. read Latin and wrote Latin. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of these, uh, of these circumstances that make this market work better. But the nice <laughs> thing about it is that it's open. So basically you look at the people who, who left the mark, which is you know, thousands and thousands and of course, for, uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of people we've, we never even hear about. But these people are basically uh, entering the market without any preconditions. You don't have to belong to a particular class. You don't have to come from a very rich family. You may, maybe not the poorest, because then you would ne might never get an education. But a lot yeah, of is, uh, yeah, what was fascinating about that also, Joe, is that reputation at that time is sort of a soft currency, right? We don't, you know, it, it is not sort of systematically tracked in publications and so on, but it seemed to have worked really well. well and, the, and the incentives were in place. So, so you say that the desire for a secure and comfortable income, if not riches, was the main driver of scholarly efforts at that, yeah. at that time. Which it still is today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. most professors that I know don't really expect to get rich. Um, they just want to have enough to, you know, have a nice house and, 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 and have enough to eat and not worry. And the rest <laughs> of, and, and beyond that, all they want to do is leave me alone and let me do my work. Right. <laughs> and, the, and, and, and it wasn't any different at that time, you know. And so you look at somebody like, say, Galileo, I mean, simply his life is so well known. And, you know, and he, one day he gets a nice appointment from the uh, Grand Duke in Florence where he's made, you know, uh, 
court scientist, and he spends yeah. many years sitting in, in, in Florence, and, you know, he doesn't have to teach, and he has a nice salary. He's not rich, but he's comfortable. And he writes his books, and he does his research. He's surrounded by people who admire him and, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, that, that, that holds for a large proportion of the people who played uh, a, a role in this revolution. And obviously, this is what everybody wants. Now, now we only know about the successful cases. So we know about Newton and we know about Leibniz and we know about Huygens and we know about the really, really superstars. And they all did fantastically well. Uh, but of course, this is what everybody wants. And so yeah. we have, you know, for every successful person, we have 10 who are writing, who are adding to science, but somehow don't make it. Okay. And these are sort of the, like, like the academics today who publish a few papers, don't get tenure and end up writing, you know, driving Uber. You know, we, there are a lot of people, there are a lot, there are a lot of people like that. And that's cruel. And it is, it, it is maybe merciless, but that's how the system worked. And it worked in those days as well. You have a lot of people looking for patronage, uh, but don't get it. And so that market is incredibly competitive. And yeah. the nice part about it, Jill, is that it isn't just on the supply side that it's competitive. It's also yeah. competitive on the demand side. So we have in Europe, you know, certainly by that time, many, many universities who want to attract superstars, but we also have courts. Mm. And so a lot of these great uh, scientists actually had non-academic jobs uh, 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 because courts wanted to have these people around for a variety of reasons. They had, so, they had influence, you say, right? The most desirable sign of success was influence. Well, that is success in persuading others of the merits of a new idea or theory. Yeah. Well, they had influence on yeah. each other, but yeah. what they really wanted, uh, the, what the courts really wanted, they wanted to have, you know, smart people around, and you can sort of see mm. a whole bunch of these great rulers, and many of the smaller ones, like the Grand Duke of Florence, or, you know, Emperor Rudolf of Habsburg is a famous example, but even Louis XIV uh, attracted to his court of the great minds uh, of Europe. He even made a job offer to Newton. This is well known. Uh, Newton, of course, mm. never left England and he wouldn't go to France. I mean, he was kind of a <laughs> difficult guy. But he did attract, say, the great Italian astronomer uh, Cassini. He attracted the great judge mathematician uh, uh, Christian Huygens. So he, 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 people, people do this. Uh, yeah. even, even Descartes, you know, was eventually convinced to go to Stockholm and spend time at the court of, of the Queen, where poor man, he got he got pneumonia in the terrible climate of Stockholm and he died. But, uh, uh, but you know, but so people want to have these people ar uh, around and they compete for them. Yeah. Uh, much like sure. American universities today are competing for the top economists and the top mathematicians and the top, you know, whatever. And that system, that competitive system. And it's, uh, always... it's also, you know, it's also uh, bringing sort of academic debate uh, into the process, right? So you say here, innovative natural philosophers in their eagerness to impress one another and hence indirectly those who would extend their patronage to them increasingly dared to criticize the conventional wisdom and if, if they only could, shout it to pieces. So, you know, the, the idea to criticize, the idea to debate uh, seemed to have really sprung up as well. Yeah, and, 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 and they criticize each other, they... You know, I mean, it's not all well, all good. I mean, they plagiarize each other, and again, like that. And the laws against plagiarism still weren't quite as sharp as they were today. And even today, people plagiarize each other, of course, but not maybe as common. Uh, there is a lot, so there's a lot of that of that give and take going on, and it's extremely lively and extremely active. We're not talking about a very large population of people, depending a bit on how you define them. I would say, you know, a few tens of thousands of people. But the nice thing about it, Jill, is that is, this is very pan-European. You yeah. can't really talk about English science or French science or German science or Spanish science. I mean, this is European science. There's something which they call the Republic of Letters. Yeah. Uh, and people talk about this. This is a concept that's the, the, a term that's been around for a long time. And they say, we are not citizens of France or of England. We are citizens... Uh, 
of the Republic of Letters. Now, this is to some extent a fiction, you know, we should not overdo this. But, but I think there is a notion of identity there that is easy to overlook. People, you know, these intellectuals really thought that they were part of a community to mm. which they belonged and um, to and which defined their identity. And what is interesting is that that community sets certain rules of that of that community uh, even though they weren't enforced rigorously by any uh, government but they were considered to be more or less binding and um, and one of the rules that I and, and that sort of takes me back to my earlier argument is yeah. what I call contestability so there are no sacred cows in this society you know the when the uh, this is embodied beautifully in the uh, motto of the uh, Royal Society, which is founded in 1660 in London. And the motto is in nullius verba, which is Latin for on no person's word, or, you know, don't take anybody's word for it. And that basically means that, you know, the fact that so-and-so said this doesn't make it true. You have to right. test, you have to re-examine, you have to challenge. That is how European science works at that time. And that's and, uh, what's also interesting here, Joel, is that, you know, uh, when we look at the properties of the system at the very high level, uh, we, see, we see certain things, but you say it's neither design nor intent, but a classic emergent property. So the macro level system-wide unintended consequences of lower level interactions. Uh, so, you know, it just happened, so to speak, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the notion of emergent property, I think, defines yeah. it really, really well. I mean, this is this is the result of thousands, thousands of lower level interactions between individuals writing to each other, you know, publishing, reading books, you know, uh, uh, corresponding, may at times meeting each other. So that was fairly rare. And uh, and the notion of a republic of letters sort of emerges even so nobody designed it, nobody ran it, nobody managed it. And, you know, the, the, you, in principle, at least, or at least in theory, it was completely non-hierarchical. Now, that's obviously uh, not all that exact in, in, in reality because you always have superstars and, you know, you look at how the, uh, say, the English scientific uh, community worked and you realize that for a long time Isaac Newton basically ran it and and and, and uh, was the sort of uh, go-to guy and there's a few there's another a few other people like that uh, uh, elsewhere but the, uh, yeah the, yeah another important point you make here is that it's about fragmentation so you say European intellectual life that benefited from political fragmentation while maintaining cohesion with them. Yes. In that sense, Europe could enjoy the benefits of both the polycentric political system and the economies of scale of a continent-wide community of scholars. That, that, is, that is really interesting, the really important point, I think, right? I think that's exactly right, and I stand by that statement. Um, it's, what you have to understand about Europe and how it differs from, say, a place like China. It isn't just that when you're looking at the map, you see a patchwork of, you know, dozens and dozens of political units, some of them small, some of them large, you know, but, but clearly nobody ever succeeded in uh, creating a European empire that they ruled the way the Ming and the Qing ruled China. But it's more than that. Even within individual political units, there's a lot of competition because what we have to understand is that uh, European cities were to a large extent self-governing. Yeah. And so it's not just that in, you know, within, say, France, <clears throat> they're competing with England or they're competing with Spain or, 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 or the Habsburg, but within France, you have all these cities that are competing with each other. And the same is true in England, and the same is true in, 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 in other countries that look like they are, even in Spain, this is very true. Uh, different regions and different towns competing with each other. So within each, so the competition takes place at a whole bunch of, of, of levels. And, 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 and that's excellent. 
because you don't have that anywhere else. These autonomous cities are very much a European invention. Chinese cities were not self-governing. Islamic cities were not self-governing. It was all very highly centralized. And that's not true. That's not true in Europe. Um, cities have a lot of autonomy, a lot of decisions that they make. And, uh, you know, the ruler really couldn't impose his or her will on them um, without f facing the repercussions. So for a city, it's, of course, not just the relation with the ruler. It's, I mean, they, we want to have... And that kind of phenomenon uh, exists all over Europe. Now, you add to that the fact yeah. that there is religious competition. So after 1517, you get Protestantism, but you don't get one Protestantism, you get many Protestants. You get Calvinists, you got Lutherans, you got Baptists, you got all that. <laughs> and right. so, but, but, see, but that's extremely important because religious competition mm. uh, uh, leads... In among many things, I mean, it leads to ugly stuff. Obviously, <laughs> we have, you know, we have religious religious wars, and you know, they're pretty bloody-minded things. But what you see is that a part of this religious competition is that all religions start investing in education, and so mm. a good example is the emergence of the Jesuit order. So the Jesuit order was explicitly set up to defend Catholicism against the threats of heresy, of, of Lutheranism. But what do the Jesuits do? They set up schools. Right, right. And the Jesuit schools all over. But And the same is true in England. In England, you have the Church of England, and then you have these so-called dissenters. Yeah. And uh, the dissenters who are, you know, various other uh, Protestant groups, but the dissenters set up schools called dissenting academies, mm -hmm. which are considered to be the best schools in England. And even people in the Church of England say, well, you know, we don't believe in the dissenting religions, but I'm going to send my son to a dissenting academy because it's better than the local thing. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so that, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, so that's the, there's a, that level of competition within Europe. Yeah. Again, and you know, if you think about it, in fact, this is the way competition works in all economic models you know the the mm. efficiency of the competitive system is a classic yeah. emergent property i'm not the first one to point that out yeah. but it's clearly the case so people come into a market and they don't want to make the system efficient and they don't want to make this want to make money right, and right. but the competitive system forces them to behave in particular way that eventually creates an efficient allocation of resources as an unintended uh, consequence of this process. And I think the market for ideas, uh, in, with some major differences, works the same way. So, so another axis uh, that appears quite critical for this process to work, you call it aptitude. And you say to make a difference in economic performance, the insights of natural philosophers and practical mathematicians had to be implemented. So, yes. so engineering and artisans become a major, uh, major ingredient here, right? Absolutely. You know, that, that, that I think is something that, you know, a lot of economic historians have overlooked. And so the way I put it to my students is I say, I mean, people, you know, had brilliant ideas mm. uh, throughout history. Um, and uh, sort of a classic example of somebody who had a lot of interesting technological ideas is, is Leonardo, right? So we know this because his sketchbooks <laughs> have survived. And you, yeah. and, 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 you know, and everybody sort of gaped at these and see the wonders that he designed, the helicopter and, you know, and airplanes and all kinds of machines and machinery. Wonderful. Except none of those was ever built during his lifetime because of the workmanship and the materials just weren't there. And what you need in order to translate technological ideas and new inventions into something that actually works is workmanship and materials. And, uh, and those things need to be created. They are not, you know, coming down like manna from heaven. They are the results of institutions and of culture themselves. But mostly, you know, they are, sometimes they are just a matter of, 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 of good fortune. One way or another... I think what mattered in Europe is that what you, I think you can, I can document this fairly well, but there's still a lot of work to be done, is that the level of artisans mm. uh, and their capabilities over time 
improved dramatically, say, between 1400 and 1700. Hmm. And there's a hierarchy, a bit of a hierarchy there, right? So oh, know, yeah. in, the pa- in the paper, you say, you know, three levels of technological activity that drove innovation in this period. Uh, one is the major breakthroughs. And, you know, those, uh, I think, you know, uh, we know them. Uh, James Watt, uh, John Harrison, sure. Samuel Crompton. Uh, but then you say, you know, there are, there are underneath that, um, there are major improvements to, you know, these innovations, which are, which are equally critical uh, for this to Absolutely. work, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, and these, 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 fairly, these are sort of minor improvements. I call them tweaks. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and these tweaks, of course, matter a great deal because they are the ones where, you know, the productivity is, productivity is really going up. So we actually can document this in particular sectors. Um, you know, there is, for instance, good evidence that um, in, in the watch industry. So two friends of mine wrote a famous paper on watches in the 18th century. And uh, so what they do, they have the, uh, never mind how they got this, but they got prices of watches uh, that people paid when they bought them. And you can sort of see the price coming down at a rate of some over 1% a year, year after year after year. And why is that? Because of minor improvements in the quality of the materials and putting them together and better division of labor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we can actually see this happening over time. And um, there aren't any famous names associated with that, but we do see the outcome. And this is true for other industries as well. And so what you said about James Watt is, I think, is is exactly right. There are a couple of famous names associated with the development of steam power. Of course, Thomas Newcomen, who built the first steam engine in 1712. And then, of course, Watt, who made a major uh, uh, improvement in it. uh, And, you know, and a few other famous names. But in fact, if you read the history of the steam engine, you realize that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of these guys, they were almost all guys, I, I hate to say it, uh, uh, <laughs> working on this problem and, you know, and making minor improvements uh, here and there. And so you see the efficiency of these steam engines getting better. They're breaking down less frequently. They're easier to repair. Uh, their, their movement is more even and more, more steady. Um, they use less fuel. I mean, there's a whole bunch of dimensions in which these engines can be improved. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so people who are experts on this actually can identify a fair number of the less famous engineers who made this thing better. But this is quite crucial. You need to have a cadre mm. of engineers, of technicians, of, as they're called, mechanics at this time uh, who do this. And yeah. if your mechanics yeah. are better than anybody else's, you will become the leader. Yeah, another interesting point, Joel, you make a different differentiation between uh, France and Britain. Um, you say the class of elite artisans in France was different from Britain's. France was missing something that Britain had in large quantities, namely the very skilled but unpretentious down-to-earth practical mechanics slaving away in the diary workshops of Leeds. Whereas <laughs> French, <laughs> French mechanics uh, catered to the fashions and whims of the rich and glamorous rather than the needs of the masses. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting, uh, interesting difference as well. Uh, yeah. And so it's not only the existence of that hierarchy that, that you talked about, but also at the bottom of the hierarchy, there's a question of focus yes. of, of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that, that's absolutely right. Now, you know, in the end, that difference mattered a lot less then you would think for the very simple reason that what happens in, in France is that a lot of Brits come over to France <laughs> yeah. and help them set up their industries because they want to be part of the game too. And so when you look at the French cotton industry, for instance, um, you know, what they do is they say, well, we can't quite get this to work. And so they bring in these British mechanics, which is partially illegal and it's difficult to build a war between the two. So there's wonderful stories there. But yeah, when you come right, right down to it, you can see that the Brits are, you know, b- because they are, have better mechanics than everybody else, they spread all over Europe. Mm. Uh, 
and uh, they set up these these factories and these machineries uh, and that's not just in france it's 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 everywhere and so if you go to the city of donetsk in the eastern ukraine uh, you will see to maybe to your surprise a big statue of a man called john hughes who was a welshman actually and john and actually the town was called yuzova for many years after Hughes, okay, now it's called Donetsk, and in between it was called Stalino, we know after whom that is, and, uh, but, but basically, John Hughes got into Russia by the Tsar's uh, officials to mm. help them set up an iron industry, because they didn't know how to do it, and they didn't have the skills, but they, so they brought in somebody from England, they paid it very well, they gave them probably a nice house. I don't actually know that, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here. <laughs> and it was probably, and they probably fed him a lot of vodka. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but he set up the iron industry. And you see these people in Spain, you see them in the Netherlands, you see them in Belgium, you see them in Germany, in the Habsburg Empire. These Brits, and so in some sense, uh, I think uh, uh, Britain was the leader only temporarily because they couldn't keep it there. And yeah. And that's and that's and that is very much because Europe is this sort of coherent intellectual community, and you just couldn't keep things at home. People move move around, and, and uh, um, yeah, and, 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 and the and, training, right? The the training. So, you know, skilled. You say skilled artisans were trained in formal and informal apprenticeship relationship relations with existing masters. So, yeah. Europe's master artisans thus produced two different outputs: material goods and technical training for the next generation. And it appears that they had a lot of flexibility as to, as to where to go for the apprenticeship, apprenticeship program. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a line of papers that I've developed over the last, I don't know, what, decade or so. Yeah. And, um, and basically, my argument is something like that. So there's a lot of talk in economics about human capital, mm. okay? Mm. And, you know, you go to the development literature, and, you know, people think it's great, some people think it's not, but people talk about human capital. What's human capital? It's, when, you know, whether you went to school, how many years you spent in school, how good the school was, blah, blah, blah. And the interesting thing, of course, is that in much of history, artisans rarely went to school. Mm the way they became artisans is that they were taught by another artisan. That's what we call apprenticeship. And that's a universal concept. We know that there's apprenticeship in the Roman Empire because there's, there's documents that there were em apprentices in ancient Greece. And, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, people had to be taught. You know, if you were going to become a carpenter or a blacksmith or a tailor, somebody had to teach you this and you couldn't go to engineering school if you were going to become a millwright. Yeah. So who taught you? Well, either your father, mm. and in many cases it was your father or your uncle, <coughs> or somebody that your parents contracted with to train you. Mm. And what I am arguing in Europe is that, and particularly in Britain, but elsewhere as well, is that this system worked better in Europe than anywhere else uh, for a variety of reasons and that over time these european apprentices uh get you know the system in which they are trained is gets better and better and the net result of course is better aptitudes because that's where you learn it you learn it from somebody else yeah yeah so um so both attitude and aptitude seem to have played uh, a major role in this uh, in this difference between Europe and the rest of the world. And we can observe some things here, right? So you say there is no reason to think that by the time Europeans reached Asia and European artisans were on average more skilled than their colleagues in India, China, or Japan, they were approximately the same. Yet by 1600, there are signs of an opening gap in some yes. areas. So Europe was pulling ahead in basic, you say, in basic mechanical technology, screws, levers, pulleys, as well as optical instruments, printing, hydraulic technology, and precision mechanisms such as clocks, watches, toys, musical instruments, and guns. And so, so um, the the observation here is, um, you know, uh, in a in a shorter time frame, right? Uh, you could actually see this happening within uh, within a few decades. Well, that's I think when it's sort of 
when the flower starts blooming, so to speak, and that's during the, I think, during the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Uh, you know, at some point in the middle of the 18th century, many of those plants that had been growing, all of them starts flowering, and you start seeing new inventions uh, coming uh, uh, to the fore. And, uh, and, and, and then, you know, within a very short time, you see uh, Europeans obviously outmaneuvering uh, everybody else. So, you know, the classic example that Karl Marx was already writing about <laughs> is how the cotton industry, which had been in, you know, uh, endemic in India for, 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 for centuries, and Europeans yeah. were importing these cotton goods from India, these calicos that they wanted so badly because these Indian artisans were so good at, at, at making them. And then in, in, in the 19th century, we see the flows of cotton reversing. It's <laughs> instead of India exporting cottons to, you, uh, to England, England exporting them to India. Because, you know, quite frankly, there are other things going on here, you know, colonial relationship and so on. But the basic thing is that Europeans were better at it then Indians and the Indians couldn't compete. I mean, that sounds very, very cruel, but that is precisely how it was. The Indians couldn't compete unless they got a hold of the machinery that the British had 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 developed. You know, mules and 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 power looms and things like that that the Europeans had developed, and that simply made a cheaper and better product. And the Indians just couldn't compete. And, you know, the same is true for the Islamic world. The same is true for China. I mean, Europeans are clearly making better products over time because yes. they are more skilled and they have better machinery. And then they have the skills to build the machinery, to maintain the machinery, uh, to improve the machinery. And so I think that creates this gap mm. between the West and the rest. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and there's also uh, I, I don't know this, Joel, but I, I was wondering. There's also a critical critical scale issue, right? Once you reach it, it's a lot easier to go, a lot faster, further. Uh, and so, you know, uh, some of the ingredients here again. You say many of the institutions of public science, such as scientific societies and uh, academies, were aimed at the demonstrations of the miracles that science could accomplish. In private gatherings and coffee houses, inns and domestic residences, scientists and artisans met one another and exchanged ideas. So there is a there is a culture that is rapidly developing, and we can measure the outputs of that, which seems fantastic. Absolutely, and I think there. And you know, I, I am not incredibly taken by the concept that scale, in and of itself was all that important. I mean, look, I mean, you look, compare England to China, say, yeah. okay, so, you know, China is, a, I don't know, what, uh, you know, maybe the population of China is 50 times what it was in England. I'm just, I don't have the numbers here in front yeah. of me, but that's the right order of magnitude. So we're talking, you know, if you needed scale and scale alone, a number of people, you know, China would beat anybody else. It's vast and it's fairly coherent. You know, there is a lingua franca, there is a there is an administration. So, scale works in favor of China, but clearly, scale is neither necessary nor sufficient. Uh, and so, uh, but what you, I think, what you're absolutely right about is that what happens in in Europe is because intellectual activity is continent-wide in the sense that if you write a paper at in Edinburgh yeah or if you you know invent something in I don't know what somewhere else it will flow elsewhere you know a paper written Edinburgh within a year or two would be read in Stockholm in Warsaw in Berlin in Madrid and in Naples um, mm -hmm. we know this because in fact you can some of these some of these things you can you can trace. And so you have all this fragmentation and people who spoke different languages and had different religions and didn't like each other particularly much, but they will read each other's papers and books. And I think that is, that is really as, you know, this amazing European phenomenon that, as you said, you know, it, it creates this emergent property of uh, Europe pulling ahead scientifically and technologically for uh, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So in conclusion, Joel, I, I want to get your insights into if you look at today, 
um, you know, so so what what your paper is suggesting is that you know this this um, interaction between natural philosophers, let's call them designers, and artisans, let's call them you know uh, the producers, so designers and producers, so to speak, that interaction was very critical. Now today uh, we sort of have that in a in a different way, right? So, you know, we have a lot of the designs being done in the U.S. Uh, we have a lot of the tangible goods being produced in China, a lot of the software goods produced in India, um, and so you know this type of a specialization. If countries start to specialize in this way. Um, what what do you think? You know, does it have some downside? Uh, what 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 is what are your thoughts on that? Well, I didn't used to think that it had a downside because until not that long ago, I actually were, I thought this was a fantastic system and that you know what people call somewhat fleetingly globalization, mm. which is what you describe basically. Yeah. Um, uh, was going to keep producing uh, very rapidly expanding uh, prosperity. I think for a variety of reasons, uh, this globalization has experienced some setbacks in recent years and countries are maybe less willing to depend on others for their for you know essential ingredients of their prosperity. Mm. And uh, I think... Uh, international cooperation and, and, and trust have taken a beating. I think we all know why. And I don't think <laughs> the, the, epi the epidemic, well, it's, you know, it's, it's really multilateral. I don't think any particular country or any particular politician um, is to blame. I think the, the entire, you know, global culture of cooperation and trust has taken a beating in the last 15, 20 years. And that saddens me a great deal. Because, as you say, you know, world prosperity depends a great deal on, you know, an international division uh, of of labor. That said, I, I want to add quickly uh, yeah. a point that isn't made enough to my, and that is that competition between major blocks. I don't think it's competition between nations now. You know, just competition between major blocks. You know, China is a major block. The EU is a major block. North America is a major block. The competition between them. As long as it doesn't degenerate into into the outright hostility, has I think favorite consequences because what will happen is that if new technology comes around and for some reason one block fails to adopt it, um, then the other block will. And of course, if the first block knows that the other block will, then they will be more willing to adopt this. Uh, is new technology. So you think about, for instance, something that I'm actually feel very keenly about, and that is genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of resistance to genetic engineering, much of it for, you know, uh, uh, irrelevant reasons or uh, immaterial reasons. But there is, but the point is that, you know, the nations that object to genetic engineering try to make it um, uh, impossible will have to contend with the fact that if they don't do it somebody else will yeah. and eventually will outsell them with superior products and right. uh, i think that, that that's true across the board for lots of things so you can try to bid to ban uh, 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 certain products but it that that will not work and you know that in some sense is something is a lesson that you can learn from the European experience in the 17th century. Mm. And everybody, you know, a lot of people didn't like the, the new technology, but they said, look, if we don't adopt it, those other guys will. Mm. And so we have to do it. And, and you know, so the, the best example of all that I can find of this is the uh, competition between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1950s. And, you know, we all remember, well, I do remember, you probably do, <laughs> but I remember the kind of shock that yeah. went to the Western world in 1957 and 1958 when the Soviets first launched Sputnik and then shot Yuri Gagarin into space. And everybody said, oh, my God, you know, we need to do something because these other guys will get ahead of us and that will be a disaster. And right. so the net result was not just that Americans put a, a, a man on the moon, but that a whole sort of slew of technological and scientific progress was driven 
by this concern that the Soviets would get ahead of us. And uh, I think that kind of phenomenon we still have today. Mm. And, um, so, you know, I have mixed feelings about this because sometimes these things go wrong and then they go wrong, they can go very wrong, like in 1914. But, mm. but as long as it stays within these boundaries, that's, I think, actually kind of healthy. So, yeah. uh, so this thing has, this is sort of a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, information is democratized, so it is very difficult uh, to, to sort of circum, circumvent, um, you know, certain innovations by regulation. So I think what, if, I, if I understand your point correctly, uh, Joel, what you're saying is that localized regulation in a specific area, in a specific block, is not going to work because somebody else is going to do it. And then basically sell you back the products. Yeah. Um, or, or if if and if you don't buy it, you know your living standards will fall. I mean that's right. just exactly. I think that's exactly how it works, and that is the nature of the competitive process. You know, you're yeah. not really free to do as you please as you would if you were a monopolist, because you always have to worry about the people around you. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we didn't get to the other papers, Joel. We ran out of time, but this has ah, been this has been great. And I know. Thanks so I... much for spending time with me. And, this, uh... <laughs> this was this was this was great fun. Would you send me a copy of the uh, blog when it comes out? I take it you're going to edit this. Absolutely, and... absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I do that uh, tomorrow for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye. All right, my pleasure. Uh, stay safe. <laughs> you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.